God's word for us this evening is from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 17. So that's Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 17. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Graham, very much indeed. Well, a very good evening to everybody. Thank you for coming along tonight, whether you're at home uh, or here in the building. I've got a question for you to begin with. Um, which would you say is more powerful if you had to make a point? Uh, actions or words? So doing something or saying something? And it sort of depends on lots of different things, doesn't it? But a lot of people would say uh, that actions, Andrew, I'd agree with you, actions speak louder uh, than words. What I want to do tonight is just look at the two actions of Jesus in the passage that we read. Uh, firstly, choosing to ride in to Jerusalem on a donkey, and secondly, uh, going into the temple and creating chaos and mayhem and turning over all the market stalls and the uh, stalls where the moneylenders were and just trying to get into Jesus' head. What was going on? Why did he uh, do those things? And what does it tell us about his life? Uh, so that's what we're going to be uh, doing. Uh, you may or may not know that 
in the Bible, there's quite a long history of God's prophets doing something because they'd run out of words. I don't know if you've ever been so frustrated by somebody in your life. They've tried to tell them something. They've tried to get a point across. You've tried and you've tried and you've tried. And literally, whatever you say, however clearly you say it, however expertly you say it, they still don't get the point. They just look at you with sort of glazed eyes or just indifference. Well, some of God's prophets were in exactly uh, that situation. Uh, one, uh, the one that I think of immediately was Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah was uh, alive sort of seven, eight hundred years uh, before Jesus. And he knew that God was going to take uh, the people of Israel out into slavery. And he, he kept telling them, and he kept saying, watch out for Babylon, who was like their next-door neighbor. They're going to come in. They're going to create chaos. And everyone said, nah, nah, nah. We're okay. We're God's people. We're special. It's going to be fine. And so what Jeremiah did was he got a big piece of wood, and he made a, a yoke, like the, a yoke that goes over the head of, a, of an ox or a horse when it's uh, pulling a carriage along. And he put it over his own head, and he just started walking about town with this thing on his head. And of course, people start to ask him, well, why are you wearing that stupid thing around your neck? I mean, you can try it in Winchester tomorrow if you want to see how that goes down. You'll get some funny looks. And um, he said, I'm wearing this because this is what's going to happen to all of us. We are going to be put into slavery. And you can tell for some people at least that that, that, was a, an, that was an action, something that he did that cut through where words uh, could not. Uh, Ezekiel was another prophet, and uh, what Ezekiel did was one day God told him to pack up all of his stuff. So he went to his house, and he got all his stuff out, and he kind of took it all out into the street, and he packed it all up into like an equivalent of a suitcase and put it on his back and just sort of trudged off into the distance. Everyone was sort of looking at him like this, what's going on? And um, when they asked him why he's doing that, he said, well, that's what's going to happen to all of us. We're going to be captured and we're going to be taken away somewhere where we don't want to go. So there's a great history in the Bible of uh, God's prophets using actions to get through to people when words alone won't do. And I think the two things that we're going to look at uh, follow on in that noble uh, tradition. So the first is Jesus choosing a donkey uh, to enter into Jerusalem. Now, all of the gospel writers, we heard from Matthew, we could have heard from any of the, any of the others, they all stress this isn't an accident. It's not that sort of Jesus was walking along the road and he sees a donkey, he thinks, I'm a bit tired and it would sort of be cool, uh, so I'm going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, what we do know is that he made elaborate plans he talked to like a secret guy that only he knew. He made a plan with that guy, have the donkey ready at this particular time, and he sent his disciples to go and collect the donkey. So it was all part of a plan. And that was uh, to be riding into Jerusalem at the time of this big festival uh, called the Passover. Uh, and I guess if you've been to somewhere like Wembley in London, uh, Wembley Stadium, you kind of get that sort of, you know the kind of feeling uh, we used to live in Chesham, which was just a few stops on the Metropolitan Line from Wembley. So we'd quite often go down. You know, it's just that great moment where you get off the train at Wembley and there's literally tens of thousands of people all streaming in um, to Wembley Stadium. 
and it's just, there's such a buzz, and there's all kinds of things going on. Well, that's the moment that Jesus chooses when the whole of Jerusalem is going balmy uh, over um, this great festival, and he arrives at that very uh, particular moment. Now, some people think, ah, oh, donkey, donkey's kind of cool, uh, donkey's kind of humble. Uh, well, it is those things, but the reason that Jesus chose a donkey was not to be cool or actually to be humble, necessarily. He chose it because there was a prophecy in the Old Testament, and that prophecy talked about the king coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And so Jesus knows that prophecy, the people know the prophecy, and so he deliberately, he wants to arrive in Jerusalem riding this donkey. So he's saying to them, the king that Zechariah talked about, that's me. I'm here. I am your king. And we can completely tell that the people got that because what they did was they, if you sort of imagine along the side of the road, lots of palm trees, they broke off branches from the palms and they laid them out in front of Jesus just as they had done at other great moments in the history of Israel and they shout out, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, the reason they say the son of David is because David was the great king of Israel. He was the, the second king of Israel, but he was the great king of Israel. And so they recognize that by choosing the donkey on that day, Jesus is saying, I come as a king. A very special kind of king, but that's how I come. So Jesus chooses to enter Jerusalem on a donkey when the crowds are all milling around in their tens of thousands. Then he comes to the temple. Now Jerusalem, then and now, not a very big place. Everything's quite close to everything else. But he could have gone in, in one of several directions. He could have gone to the high priest's house. That was, the kind of, that was where the religious powers were. He could have gone to the governor's palace, where the Roman governor sat, surrounded by his soldiers. That would have been the obvious place to go, because that was... As many people saw, that was the root of the problem. That was the power that was taking over at Jerusalem. But instead, Jesus goes to the temple. And I just thought I'd very quickly explain to you, because it's really helpful to know, just in terms of what the temple looked like and what it was that Jesus did. So the temple was a series of courtyards that were sort of connected uh, together. And you had an outer one, and they kind of worked their way inwards. And so if, if Christchurch now was the temple in Jerusalem, then pretty much all of us who are in here now would be in the outer courtyard that was called the Court of the Gentiles. And in terms of our building here, it's sort of, we'd be sat in the car park, literally. It's kind of, it, was the, it was the bit that was right outside. Then... Uh, the next courtyard, I guess it would be a bit like the concourse along there, and that was called the Court of Women. And so Jewish women were allowed to go and sit in the concourse. You couldn't see very much. Uh, you couldn't really hear much of what was going on, but you were one courtyard further in than the people that are still in the car park. Then this main bit of the building here was the Court of the Israelites, and that was for men only. So only Jewish men were allowed in there. Then you had at the court of the priests, which I guess might be like this kind of little bit here that's sort of, you know, keeping the riffraff out. So along here, only, only holy musicians allowed in. And then within the court of the priests, there was 
the Holy of Holies. It's not really, is it? But the baptistry. But it was the Holy of Holies. And that had a huge, great curtain in it that separated it out. And if you're going to be here at our all-in service on Friday, you'll learn a bit more about that curtain. But uh, the Holy of Holies was where the Ark of the Covenant sat and where God's presence was believed to be fully and intimately present in that very place. And once a year and once only, the high priests all chose lots and one of them was chosen to go into the Holy of Holies. And when they went into the Holy of Holies, they tied a rope around their leg. And so they would go in and they'd go through the, through the curtain and into the Holy of Holies and they'd offer stuff. And when they were in there, there was a fear that they would be killed because the presence of God was so glorious and so wonderful. And the reason the rope was there was they could be pulled out again without anybody having to go in and risk the anger and the glory of God. So that was how the temple was set up in those days. All of us, pretty much, unless you're a Jewish man or a Jewish woman, would have been out in the car park in uh, the court of the Gentiles. And that was the place that Gentiles were supposed to be able to come to learn about God and to take part in the worship of his people. But what had happened was it had turned into a market. And it was a market for two things. The first thing was you had to go and buy temple money because there, there was a currency called the temple shekel that was, could only be used in the temple. And so if you'd come, say, from Cyprus, and you'd arrived in Jerusalem, you had your Cyprus money with you, I guess you had euros, and you came out and you, you had to change your euros for temple shekels, because you couldn't buy anything for the temple unless you changed your money. Now, if your parent or somebody important in your life, uh, I'm sure they've told you at least once, never buy money, never change currency at the airport. And it's basically the same with the court of the Gentiles. If you had to go and change your money there, the, ex the rates were absolutely extortionate. So you got ripped off by the people that were selling the temple shekels uh, to, to, and you had to change your money. The second thing that was going on was that they, you were buying animals. So for instance, you had to, might have to buy a dove. And then you'd buy the dove and you'd take it in. And when you got into the temple complex, then the dove would be sacrificed as part of the worship of that day. And the price you paid for a dove inside the court of the Gentiles was 20 times what you'd pay for it outside the court of the Gentiles. So somebody was making an absolute killing on doves because you buy your doves outside, you bring them in, you sell them for 20 times the price, and you make a lot of money. So that is what is going on in the court of the Gentiles. That's supposed to be the place where Gentile people come to learn about God. And instead, it's this market, and it's not only a market that is kind of crazy and busy and noisy, that would be one thing, but it's a market that is ripping people off and is, and is extorting the very people whom it's supposed to be serving. And so that's why Jesus goes into the to the court of the Gentiles, and at this stage, he doesn't have any more words. I guess he doesn't feel he can say, hey, look, this seems to be all wrong. Instead, he acts. And it's, 
at first sight, it's rather un-Jesus kind of behavior, isn't it, really? To be flinging tables over and frightening doves and smashing pots of money on the ground and driving the market sellers out of their place. But we're told that he is righteously furious. That the very people who are furthest away from God are being ripped off and extorted at when they should be blessed and they should be welcomed in. And he explains why he's so angry. You know, he said, and he quotes, uh, as he always does, or so often does from the Bible, you know, he says, well, look, this place is supposed to be a house of prayer, this temple, uh, but you've made it a den of robbers. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament had given the people of Israel a vision of what the temple should be. It should be a place for people of all nations to come and worship and to know the grace of God. Uh, as I said, look, even, even the eunuch, and eunuchs in those days were excluded from everything, even the person who's come from miles and miles and miles away, who knows nothing of God's way, they should be able to find God in this place. The temple was to be a place of hope. One of the pictures that was used for it is it's supposed to be a light that is shedding the light of the glory of the knowledge of God to the whole world. Yet in Jesus' time, it had closed in on itself, and it was just living for itself. What did Gentiles find when they came to the only bit of the temple that they were allowed to worship in? They found a market full of doves and uh, lambs and other uh, animals, and they were ripped off by the very people who should have been caring for them. And so Jesus just drives out the whole lot. That's his second action, quoting Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, sorry, who'd prophesied in his time against the temple because it had become this den of robbers, a place of corruption and unbelievable superstition. And what's Jesus showing by those two actions? You know, what, what were people to make of that? It seems to me he was showing that the very heart of the whole system of ancient Judaism, the whole way the temple worked, he was saying it's failed. The temple has not been what it should be. It's supposed to be a place of prayer for everybody, but it's become corrupt and self-centered. And Jesus is full of righteous anger. He came to Jerusalem as a prince of peace. He was hailed by the people as a prince of peace. And his first act was not to go to the governor's place. It wasn't to set up a revolutionary council. It was to go to the religious heart of Israel and there to cause maximum disruption. And he couldn't have stirred it up anymore if he tried. He was beginning to say something very powerful about the nature of the temple itself and all the things that took place there. The temple had failed in its God-ordained role as a witness to the nations and as a place of salvation for all people. It was now being relegated to the sidelines. It was no longer able to play a significant role in God's purposes for salvation. And Jesus comes as a king, and as so often when you get a great king or a great leader, Jesus wants to bring in change that is deeper and more radical than even the people want. The people are excited because they see Jesus and it all looks great and they're enthusiastic for a new king. Jesus knows 
that he's got to go so much deeper. He's got to bring change on such a profound level. The very basis on which forgiveness is given from God to human beings is about to be undermined and changed. The temple could no longer be that place. In fact, it was never supposed to be able to be that place. It was a, a shadow of what was to come. And now he has come in all of his glory. And the first hints of what this would be like are in the last part of the passage. After Jesus drives out these money lenders and market holders, what does he do? He attends to the poor and to the lame and the people that seek him out in the court of the Gentiles. And he brings them comfort. And then he goes to the children. The children, being kids, have picked up the excited chanting of the crowds, Hosanna to the son of David, and they're sort of repeating it and laughing and running around. And Jesus is loving that. The blind and the lame, like the Gentiles, were kept at arm's length by the worship of the temple, kept as far away as possible. Same with children. But they, the fragile ones, are the focus of Jesus' care, as God had always intended. They, they get to come to the front of the queue. And later that week, Jesus would begin to make things a little clearer at the Passover meal when he takes uh, the cup of wine, uh, the great symbol of the Passover when the people of Egypt, uh, people of Israel escaped from Egypt. He takes that cup of wine and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, the old covenant, is vanishing, ebbing away. And there is a new covenant here. The new one is founded in his own sacrifice at once and for all for the sin of the world. Now we are, I just want to recognize how fortunate we are that our worship here is, is in a sense, based on and comes out of hundreds of years of Christians thinking about passages like this. So we no longer tie bits of rope to clergy, thinking that they're going to die if they go anywhere in the church. We no longer believe that you need a priest to help you or to speak for you. You don't need Claire, you don't need me, you don't need James. You don't need a priest to represent you to God or to speak to God on your behalf. Each of us as children of God, do that for ourselves. We know that there's nothing that we can do. There's no sacrifice that we can make. There's no, there's no righteous act that we can perform that is going to make us more lovable or more acceptable or more righteous in the sight of God. We have learnt all of these things. And that's why our worship is infused with such gratitude and thankfulness. We don't come here in fear. We come here with joy. But there's still, there's still a nagging question. I want to leave that hanging in two ways. The first one is, uh, think about uh, what Jesus did in those two actions, the donkey and uh, the running out of town of these moneylenders. There are only two 
of his actions in this unbelievable week that we're about to enter. And if you're not yet a Christian, or you're just right on the edge of faith, then we would just really encourage you, look in detail at all the other things that Jesus did. Look at the supper he had with his friends. Look, uh, as we did a few weeks ago, at his praying in Gethsemane. Look at how he reacts to the betrayal of his friends. Look at how he behaves, uh, the dignity and the silence uh, when he's uh, interviewed by all these people who want to kill him. Think about how he responds to his flogging, to carrying the cross through the streets as he's pinned to that cross and he cries out, Father, forgive them. Think about those words that he says as he dies. It is finished. We can't see these two acts in isolation. They're part of a bigger and more beautiful whole. And if you're not a Christian, I would just really encourage you to use every possible resource to see them and read about them and be amazed by them. You, you can't help but love Jesus more, having seen uh, these actions that speak louder than words. The second thing, though, for those of us who are Christians, is just to ask ourselves a question, do I want what Jesus wants? It's always a really great question to ask. In this passage, the religious leaders are full of indignation. They're cross at Jesus. But Jesus' cross, that they have used their position to shut people out of the kingdom. So I have to ask myself, do I want what Jesus wants? Do I want the people who are forgotten and broken and overlooked, do I want them at the front of the queue? Or am I part, however blindly and subconsciously, of making this a church community where you have to flash at credentials at the door to be fun, to be together, to be rich? I have to ask myself the question, do I want what Jesus wants? Do I want this place truly to offer an extravagant and a generous welcome for the people who are most forgotten and most vulnerable and most overlooked? I, I think I do. But I know uh, that so much of me so it reverts to religious mode and would love to keep the church as a club, a membership deal where we only let certain people in. So if you're a Christian, just ask yourself that question. Do I want what Jesus wants? Am I angry about the things that make Jesus angry? Most of the things that make me angry are things that are said about me. They're based in my vanity. The things that make Jesus angry are when beautiful children of God are excluded or overlooked. I'd love to be angry about the things that made Jesus angry, and I'd love to stop being angry 
about the dumb things that just make me angry. So two things as we finish. If you're not a Christian, please just keep tracing these different things, these acts of Jesus, because they just get more and more daring and beautiful as the week goes on. And secondly, ask yourself the question, do I want what Jesus wants? Am I angered by what angers Jesus? Do I want to be part of making this a continuing to be a church without walls? Amen.